Tonight, we're going to continue our study of the Beatitudes by thinking about Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Recall that the Beatitudes are the opening to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, many sermons start with a provocative question or a personal anecdote. Or a personal anecdote from the preacher's life. But the Sermon on the Mount starts with Jesus' authoritative pronouncement of who is blessed by God. On whom does God's favor rest? This question of who enjoys God's favor is just as urgent for us today as it was for Jesus' original audience. There is nothing any of us should desire or seek after more than the favor of God. Therefore, we need to earnestly nurture in ourselves the virtues described in the Beatitudes, including mercy. The theme, or the, the main idea, of tonight's talk is this. Mercy is compassion in action, and we should be merciful to others because God has been merciful to us. We should start by considering in more detail what mercy means. God himself is our model for mercy. In Luke 6:36, Jesus says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. And as Curtis read just a moment ago in 2 Corinthians 1:3, Paul calls God the father of all mercies. How, so how does God, how, how is God merciful? Theologian B.B. Warfield puts it like this. The divine mercy has been defined as that essential perfection in God whereby he pities and relieves the miseries of his creatures. In other words, mercy consists of two parts. First, mercy is an inward disposition, a gut or heart instinct of loving compassion for those who are suffering or in misery, whether physically, spiritually, or emotionally. And then second, mercy, properly understood, it can't just be on the inside. Rather, godly compassion, uh, it, it manifests itself in actions to alleviate other suffering. This is one of, of many ways that being a follower of Jesus is about more than just affirming or believing a philosophy or, or a set of, of truths. Think of 1 John 3, 17 and 18. If anyone sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's this two-part definition of mercy that I summarized just a minute ago as compassion in action. And we see God acting out of his compassion throughout scripture. It starts in the Garden of Eden itself, where God lovingly provides clothes to Adam and Eve when they are ashamed of their nakedness. In the New Testament, God's mercy is gloriously displayed in Christ's ministry. As you read the Gospels, notice how often Jesus' miraculous acts of healing, of driving out demons, of providing food, and of even raising from the dead are linked to his pity and compassion for the people around him. As just one example, as Jesus traveled teaching and healing every disease and affliction, Matthew 9:16 says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless 
like sheep without a shepherd. Puritan Richard Sibbs summarizes Jesus' compassion this way. When Christ saw the people in misery, his bowels yearned within him. Whatsoever Christ did, he did it out of love and grace and mercy. Jesus' compassion for the sin-sick and suffering led him not just to heal people from their physical and spiritual ills, but also to die in our place, to pay the debt for our sin. This gift of salvation is the greatest mercy that Matthew 5, 7 promises when it says that the merciful are blessed or favored or fortunate because they will receive mercy. As Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Out of compassion for us in our helplessness, in our inability to rescue ourselves, Jesus lived a sinless life and lovingly died as a substitute in our place. By taking on himself the weight of condemnation that our sin merited, Jesus allows us to be counted guiltless by God and in fact adopted as his sons and daughters. Salvation is, is a gift bestowed freely on everyone who puts their trust in Jesus. As recipients of this great un, unearned mercy, we should not be like the ungrateful servant in Jesus' parable. That servant was, given, was forgiven a great debt, but then turns around and demands that someone who owes him far less money be imprisoned because he can't pay. As people who have benefited from God's mercy, we should be quick to show mercy to others. In our relatively small acts of mercy, we demonstrate Jesus' character, who he is, and what he's like in tangible ways. In doing so, we point people to Jesus' greatest act of mercy on the cross. In fact, our human acts of mercy give a foretaste of life when God's kingdom comes in full, when Jesus himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Let's now consider three points of application of how we can model Christ's mercy. First, we can develop our capacity for compassion at the heart or gut level. I think most of us are familiar with the idea that our emotions can get us into trouble. For example, when we're angry, we may say or do things that we later regret. But the corrective to sinful emotion is not the absence of emotion. It's the presence of godly emotion or godly dispositions. Jesus has powerful inner dispositions, including, importantly, pity, compassion, and mercy. As we mature spiritually, we should desire not emotionally flat lives, but rather powerful, charged, gut-level compassion that is calibrated to Jesus' own compassion. One practical way to develop this godly disposition of compassion is to pray for those who are suffering. Now, prayer is also an action, and God acts in response to our prayers. But focus for a moment on the effects of prayer on our own hearts. By praying for those who are suffering, we expand our capacity for compassion. Prayer recognizes 
that the pain of others is real and that it matters both to us and to God. So pray for those who you know are suffering. Additionally, pray for those who are suffering who you don't know. The ocean of pain that covers our fallen world is so deep that most of us are unlikely to be able to take concrete action in response to all but the smallest sliver of the world's suffering. But God knows the suffering of every drug-addicted teenager in Arlington County, every battered woman in D.C., every political prisoner in China. One of the most powerful things about prayer is that you can pray for anyone, anywhere in the world. This morning we prayed for Iceland. I've never been to Iceland, but I can pray for the people there. The news is filled with stories of suffering and misery near and far. Responding to prayer fosters a compassionate heart that reflects God's own heart for our suffering world. And if you're a parent, consider talking to your kids about who might be suffering, and then pray for those people together. This is a great way to cultivate Christ-like compassion in your kids' hearts. Second, we should ensure that we are taking action to relieve suffering. Like the Good Samaritan, sometimes we find ourselves confronted unexpectedly with situations where our acts of mercy can relieve someone's suffering in an emergency. When that happens, we should act as the situation calls for. But acts of mercy should not be limited to spontaneous situations. Like most things in life, generally, we will be most effective if we are prepared. A compassionate heart can lead you to take immediate action, but it can also lead you to make plans for future action. This can mean signing up to volunteer at the Assist Pregnancy Center, or a food bank, or a campus ministry. It can mean giving regular contributions to foreign missions in a country that you have a heart for. It can mean creating Ziploc bags with toiletries and keeping them in the car so that when you see someone begging on the side of the road, you can give them a packet. It can mean calling a shut-in member of our church and scheduling a visit. It can mean recognizing that there are in-group and out-group dynamics at play in our offices, schools, and even our church that leave some people feeling excluded and lonely and friendless, and that we can extend a hand of friendship. Just as suffering is almost limitless, so are the opportunities to show mercy. We are finite, and the scope of physical, spiritual, and emotional suffering that we can, and the scope of physical, spiritual, and emotional suffering can feel infinite. We will have to prioritize our time, our money, and even our emotional energy. Who has God given you special compassion for? Consider setting a time, aside time, either individually or with others or with your family, to think about how you could tangibly show mercy to those who are suffering, and then make a plan to do so. When speaking about acts of mercy, we should also recognize that in our fallen world, there will be situations where we are unsure of what the most merciful action would be. Do you take time off from work to visit an out-of-time family member who is sick? Do you buy a meal for the woman begging outside your favorite coffee shop? Do you excuse a student or employee's late report because you know that they're having troubles at home? Do you extend a loan to a family member in need, even though he's failed to pay you back on earlier loans? These and other decisions require wisdom, 
Because true compassion is the desire to actually alleviate the suffering of others, not just to make ourselves feel better. If you are unsure what mercy looks like in a given situation, I suggest asking for guidance from a friend or from one of the elders here. But when in doubt, be bold. God's mercy to us is extravagant, it is passionate, it is a flood. Blessed are the merciful. So don't be too quick to bypass an opportunity to reflect God's glorious mercy to this dark world. Third and finally, our desire to show mercy can change our own experience of our own suffering. One way is that our verse tonight reminds us that God is merciful to us even in our suffering. He is compassionate, he loves us, he is for us, he is with us in our suffering, and he promises that one day he will put an end to all suffering. The Bible, uh, so that, that's the first way, that, that God reminds us that he is merciful to us in our suffering. I want to point out another way, though. The Bible says that those who love God, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, Romans 8, 28. One way that our own suffering can work for good is to make us sensitive and compassionate to others who are suffering. Our painful experiences can prepare us to come alongside others who are in pain. Just like the book of Hebrews explains that Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses because he too was tempted, we are able to be merciful to those who are suffering because we have suffered ourselves. And as we have all experienced pain and suffering, so too have we experienced mercy in the midst of our suffering. So if you are suffering, be encouraged that God can redeem your experience and empower you to act mercifully toward others that you encounter who are suffering. And in this way, even our suffering can serve to glorify God. We should close. Consider these words from Puritan minister Thomas Goodwin. He writes, God is the spring of all mercy. It is his nature and disposition because when he shows mercy, he does it with his whole heart. As the recipients of God's great mercy, let's join in prayer and ask God to make mercy our nature and disposition so that when we show mercy, we do so with our whole hearts. Please pray with me.